overlooking Dublin and its surroundings upon the crest of a 1,250 foot hill. Surrounded by dense woodland sits an ominous ruin made from the stone of a 5,000 year old grave. This structure is steeped in rumour of satanic worship and human and animal sacrifice. A club feared by locals met here regularly in the 18th century and indulged in all manner of sordid behaviour. This has left its mark on the isolated old hunting lodge, which is now considered one of the most haunted locations anywhere on the Emerald Isle. Tonight, join me as we dare to enter the eerie ruin of the Dublin Hellfire Club. Welcome to episode 23 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we find ourselves in Dublin, Ireland, climbing Mount Pellier Hill, and ask, just how haunted is the Hellfire Club? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. William Connolly was born the son of an innkeeper, Patrick Connolly, in Ballyshannon, County Donegal. His father Patrick had set aside enough money so that he was able to send William the second oldest of his five children, to Dublin to study law. William Connolly qualified as an attorney in 1685, aged 23. He practised as a lawyer in Dublin, and this would be the start of an extraordinary career which would see him make a fortune from land transfers. This is buying up land that the Crown have seized to be sold to pay for the costs of war. William Connolly bought around 3,300 acres in County Meath, 
he built the first winged Palladian house in Ireland, Castletown House in Selbridge, County Kildare. Building started in 1722, and it was specified that every part of it had to be made from Irish materials. The end result was an incredibly lavish three-storey mansion, with a floor space of 52,500 square feet, set in an 800-acre estate. His Dublin townhouse was on Cavill Street, which was then the most fashionable part of the capital city. From 1692, William Connolly was a member of Parliament, and from 1715, he was a speaker of the Irish House of Commons. In 1723, he purchased what we now know as Mount Pellier Hill, and the surrounding Rathfarnham estate from Philip Wharton, 1st Duke of Wharton, who was a Jacobite politician and had been a very, very wealthy man until the South Sea Bubble Stock Market Crash of 1720, which seen him lose £120,000. This is the equivalent a day of around £22 million. In 1724, Connolly commissioned the construction of a hunting lodge atop the 383 metre high hill. That's 1,257 feet. It was designed in the Palladian architecture style popular at the time. But there is no record of who the architect was that designed it. Architect and author Michael Feuer has suggested it may have been Edward Lovett Pierce as he had been employed by Connolly to carry out works at Castletown House, but there doesn't appear to be any historical evidence to back this claim up. The summit of the hill was, however, already home to a structure of real significance. An ancient, Neolithic passage grave dating back potentially over 5,000 years. Atop it was a stone cairn. Sadly, there wasn't the focus on preserving our past as there is now, and there wasn't any form of regulation in place to prevent Connolly damaging or even destroying this important historical site. Building went ahead, and not only that, but William Connolly instructed the builder to use the stone from the ancient cairn to build his new lodge. And we know that a standing stone that had stood on that very spot for around five centuries was used as the top for a new fireplace. This blatant disrespect of the dead immediately earned the lodge an unwelcome reputation amongst the superstitious locals, who were convinced, before construction was even finished, that the building was cursed, and probably even haunted. The building was complete in 1725, and William Connolly named it Mount Pellier. This is what the hill the structure sat upon has become known as. On the very first night following its completion, a vicious thunderstorm manifested, as if out of nowhere, and tore the brand new slate roof from the building. The locals believed this proved their superstition around the ill-fated building's curse to be true, and not only that, but it was the devil himself who had carried out this deed as payback for the desecration of the tomb. Connolly was not at all concerned and ordered the roof to be rebuilt in stone. This new barrel vaulted ceiling gave the lodge a very distinctive look, certainly more so than the original slate one had done. The completed lodge included a kitchen, servants' quarters, two stables with lean-to roofs either side of the building, a hall and two reception rooms on the upper floor, and sleeping quarters on a timber-floored third floor on the eastern side of the building. The house faces north, overlooking Dublin, and out the front was a semicircular courtyard surrounded by a stone wall. The grounds around the lodge consisted of a 1,000-acre deer park. The outside, especially with the new stone roof, looked unwelcoming and foreboding, but the inside couldn't have been more different, as it was luxuriously decorated and furnished to cater for the aristocrats and wealthy elite of Irish high society. 
It was rumoured that the lodge, which was known locally as Connolly's Folly and the Haunted House, was a secret meeting place for the Freemasons. Four years after the building's completion on the 30th of October 1729, William Connolly passed away at the age of 67. He was reputed to be the wealthiest man in Ireland at the time of his death, with an annual income of around £17,000 a year, which is in excess of £5 million today, and he owned 148,487 acres of land that yielded a gross income for him of £14,926 a year. That's in excess of £4.5 million today. Upon his death, his widow Catherine inherited his estates, including Mount Pelier. It is unknown what the lodge was used for in the years following William's death, but in 1737 an organisation was formed that would lease the lodge from the Connollys, and would become synonymous with the building from that day forth, so much so that it is known by their name today, the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club's origins date back to 1718, when it was founded in England by Philip, 1st Duke of Wharton, the very man who would later sell Mount Pelier Hill to William Connolly. Wharton created the Hellfire Club to provide a private club for his wealthy, upper-class friends, to be a place where like-minded, intelligent people could be themselves, away from prying eyes and without judgement. Wharton's club was very much a satirical gentleman's club, and despite it being claimed that the club discouraged and punished vile acts, the opposite was largely true. Religious beliefs were made fun of with mock religious ceremonies, with the supposed president of the club being the devil. In 1737, the Irish branch of the Hellfire Club was formed by Richard Parsons, 1st Earl of Ross, and James Warsdale, who was an in-demand portrait painter, actor, and libertine whose quick wit and lively conversation allowed for him to move in circles of high society. Members of the Hellfire Club were all from wealthy, aristocratic backgrounds. Richard Parsons, who was most likely the president of the club, had an infamous reputation as a man who deeply dabbled in the art of black magic and occultist practices, as well as being outspoken on his beliefs, which saw him in conflict with both the Catholic and Protestant Church in Dublin. Most of the Hellfire Club's meetings occurred in Dublin city centre at the Eagle Tavern on Cork Hill near Dublin Castle. But a secondary location was the former Hunt Lodge of William Connolly, as it was leased by the club as a meeting place. This saw its reputation as a cursed building of evil immortalised as the building would now be known by the name of the club who carried out all manner of unspeakable acts behind those closed doors. Records of the club's meetings at the remote lodge are vague at best, but it's claimed that the members drank scalphine, which was a mixture of whiskey, hot butter, pepper and sugar, and that they left a chair vacant at each gathering for the devil, should he wish to join them. The club's mascot was a black cat, their gatherings involved sexual rituals, occult practices, debauched behaviours, and mandatory drinking to excess. Their sessions often ended in violence and sexual assault, and on at least one occasion, murder. The secrecy held by its members led to local rumours of satanic rituals and devil worship. It is said that the president of the Hellfire Club was referred to as the King of Hell, and he even dressed like the winged horned devil. Members were said to make sacrifices as part of their satanic rituals. There were rumours of sacrificing black cats by dousing them in scalphine and setting them on fire, and the sacrifice of humans, as a dwarf was once said to be killed to appease the devil. A letter which is believed to have been from a club member refers to the sacrifice of maidens, 
but it's been argued that this refers to the taking of their virginity, rather than the taking of their lives. So much of what went on behind the locked doors of the Hellfire Club has became ingrained in local legend, that it's impossible to know how many of the stories are real, and what is nothing more than that, a story. The identity of the members is also clouded in secrecy, as was everything around the club, but we do know who five members were. As James Warsdale painted a scene which shows these men seated around a table, and it was entitled The Hellfire Club, Dublin. The painting which is now in the National Gallery of Ireland depicts Henry, 4th Baron Barry of Santry, Simon Luttrell, Colonel Henry Ponsonby, Colonel Richard St George and Colonel Clements. This painting depicts two of the club's most notorious members, one of which was the landowner Simon Luttrell who in later life would move to England to become a politician and the recipient of the title of the first Earl of Carhampton. When the Hellfire Club in Dublin formed, he was a young man in his early 20s, and he revelled in the reckless abandonment that the secretive club allowed him. One biography called him everything that can be conceived as odious and horrible, and he was a subject of the Diabolide, a poem by William Combe in 1776, which was dedicated to the worst man in His Majesty's dominions. An example of just how low Luttrell would stoop is when he got Darkie Kelly, the madame of a Dublin brothel pregnant, and she tried to blackmail him. He solved his problem by telling authorities that she was a witch. She was tried and executed for witchcraft. Simon Luttrell outlived all of the other known members of the Hellfire Club. Another member who was not without his personal demons was Henry Barry, 4th Baron Barry of Santry, most commonly known as Lord Santry. He lived an extravagant lifestyle. He was widely known around the city for his heavy drinking and the unpredictable violent outbursts which followed these sessions. On one occasion it's claimed that one of his servants was ill and was consigned to bed. The angry Lord Santry forced him to drink an entire bottle of brandy, then set fire to him as he lay in his bed. Santry escaped prison by paying off witnesses and making use of the powerful contacts that he had within the higher echelons of society. Despite this, unapproving eyes were pointed in the direction of the Hellfire Club, and it just cemented the belief further that this was the typical behaviour of everyone involved with that club. He would find himself in trouble once again in a documented case that occurred on the 9th of August 1738. He was in Palmerstown near Dublin City drinking with some friends. He was very drunk, and completely unprovoked attacked one of the men he was drinking with, a Mr Humphreys. Fortunately for Mr Humphreys, Santry was too drunk to draw his sword. In a violent rage, Lord Santry ran into the kitchen, where the tavern porter, a man called Lachlan Murphy, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, as Lord Santry ran his sword right through him, for seemingly no reason whatsoever. Seeing Murphy lying on the floor in a pool of blood, sobered Santry up enough to bribe the innkeeper to let him escape out of a back door. Lachlan Murphy was taken to Dublin, and he held on for around six weeks before finally succumbing to the injury on the 25th of September, 1738. Lachlan Murphy was an honest and hard-working man with a wife and young family to support, and public opinion was one of outrage. Lord Santry had to pay for this, and justice must be done. Even those within his own class considered him a nuisance and a liability. Following Murphy's death, Lord Santry, who hadn't been arrested initially, was apprehended, taken into custody and indicted for murder. He demanded, as was the privilege of peerage, a trial by his peers. 
The trial took place in the Irish Houses of Parliament on the 27th of April 1739. Lord Wyndham, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, presided in his office, Lord High Steward of Ireland, with 23 peers sitting as judges. The Attorney General for Ireland, Robert Jocelyn, and the Solicitor General for Ireland, John Bowes, led for the prosecution. The defence claimed that Murphy hadn't died of the injury he sustained at the pointy end of Santry's sword at all, but rather that Murphy had died not from his wound, but from a long-standing illness, or alternatively, a rat bite. There was no evidence to prove this was true at all, and the prosecution's medical evidence contradicted this entirely. It was clear to all that Lord Santry was guilty, and unfortunately for him, the jury of his peers agreed. His sentence was to be death. King George II was on the throne, and like all British monarchs, had the prerogative of mercy. This would be the only way Santry was going to escape his execution, and his friends and relatives petitioned the king to grant a pardon. Their argument was that Murphy had just been a tavern worker, and Lord Santry's higher standing in society meant his life was worth more than that of the innocent victim. The king refused. However, eventually a full pardon was granted, and legend would have it that Lord Santry's uncle, Sir Compton Domville, had an estate through which the river Dodder flowed. This was Dublin's main source of drinking water, and he threatened to divert the flow of the river, should his nephew be put to death. On the 17th of June 1740, Lord Santry received a full royal pardon and the restoration of his title and estates. Soon afterwards, he left Ireland for good, heading for England, making Nottingham his home for the remainder of his short life, as he passed away in 1751 at the age of just 40. One of the founders, Richard Parsons, died on the 21st of June 1741, hit his home on Molesworth Street, Dublin, in the parish of St Anne. On his deathbed he received a letter from the vicar of St Anne, the Dean of Kilmore, to, and I quote, remind him of his past life, the particulars of which he mentioned, such as gaming, drinking, rioting, turning day into night, blaspheming his maker, and in short, all manner of wickedness, and exhorting him in the tenderest manner to employ the few moments that remained to him, in penitently confessing his manifold transgressions, and soliciting his pardon from the offended deity, before whom he was shortly to appear. This letter didn't mention Parson's name, it specifically began, My Lord, so, in his final defiant act, he ordered the letter be placed into a new envelope and that the Dean's own servant should deliver it to the Earl of Kildare. Upon reading the letter, the very angry Earl sent it to John Hoadley, Archbishop of Dublin, who immediately summoned the Vicar of St Anne for his explanation. By the time what had actually happened was established, Parsons was dead. At some point during the period of the Hellfire Club's occupation, the building was ravaged by fire. No one truly knows how or why, and there are a number of different stories connected to the event, which would damage the building which would never be restored. Arguably the most popular version of events is that the club themselves intentionally set fire to the building during one drunken meeting. This was in revenge for the Connolly family refusing to renew the lease on the building, to allow the club to continue meeting there. Alternatively, it was done to give the building a more hellish appearance, befitting the Hellfire Club. Another darker story tells that a footman accidentally spilled a drink on Richard Chapel Whaley's coat. Whaley was a member of Parliament, 
and known by the nickname Burn Chapel Whaley. Some say he earned the name because he had an unhealthy obsession with fire, but the reality is far more likely due to his strong anti-Catholic sentiments and actions. Burn Chapel retaliated to the poor man's unintended deed by pouring brandy over him and setting him alight. The fire spread around the building and killed not only the man but several other people, including members of the club. Following the fire, the club relocated further down the hill to the steward's house. Another building which has also got a reputation for being haunted, but we'll look at that in more detail later. Following the fire and the enforced move, the club's activities declined, and when two other members were killed at the Battle of Fontenoy in 1745, one of which was decapitated by a cannonball, it spelt the end of the Hellfire Club in Ireland. At least it did for around 25 years, as the Hellfire Club in Dublin was revived in 1771 by Burn Chapel Whaley's son, Thomas Buck Whaley, a politician and a gambler. This new incarnation was known as the Holy Fathers. The lodge at Mount Pelia once again had a purpose as meetings were being held there once again, just as they had been by the previous generation of Dublin's aristocrats. Overindulgence, orgies, needless violence and satanic worship was back on the menu, and most famously it's claimed that the Holy Fathers kidnapped a local farmer's daughter, who they then murdered and ate. Buck Whaley eventually repented, according to his memoirs, which he wrote in 1797 but they weren't actually published until 1906. While praying, he could feel the devil creeping along the aisle towards him. The encounter terrified him so badly that in the 1790s he quit Ireland for the Isle of Man, and with it, the Holy Fathers, and the final branch of the Irish Hellfire Club was over. This also spelt the end of the useful life of the Mount Pelia Hunting Lodge. Historians today agree that, despite the fear that the Hellfire Club was in league with the devil, they weren't. But the truth wasn't too far from that. They weren't attempting to please the devil. They were freethinkers, mocking the church and organised religion. But what about the long-associated belief that this atmospheric building could be haunted? As I said earlier, the building was considered cursed and haunted by the ancient dead of the Neolithic grave, so ruthlessly plundered for building materials before the construction of the building was even completed. There are many fanciful tales of supernatural happenings here during the time of the Hellfire Club, many of which were first featured in publications such as Robert Chambers' Book of Days in 1864 and The Gentleman magazine which ran from 1731 to 1922. And these stories have now firmly embedded themselves in local folklore. One story which first appeared in texts in the 1930s tells of an especially stormy night, which saw members of the Hellfire Club play in a high-stakes card game. There was an unexpected knock upon the door of the lodge atop Mount Pelia Hill. It was a stranger who'd become lost in the storm and was desperately in need of shelter. He found the members playing cards and he asked if he could join. Everything was going great, there was laughing, drinking and gambling, but this would soon take a dark turn when one of the men sat around the table dropped a card. He bent down to pick it up and was horrified to see the feet of the stranger. He didn't have feet at all, instead he had cloven hooves. At this point the stranger turned into a ball of flame and vanished, never to be seen again. Satan had finally visited the Hellfire Club. It's impossible to tell this tale without bringing up the almost identical tale relating to Loftus Hall, a wonderful Georgian mansion dating from the 14th century in County Wexford, elsewhere in Ireland. 
this hall itself is considered to be incredibly haunted. In this story, it was a stormy night in 1775. The wind howled and the rain poured down as thunder rumbled overhead and lightning illuminated the sky. A man caught up in the storm happened upon the magnificent mansion and knocked on the door. The compassionate Tottenham family who owned the hall took the man in and happily fed and accommodated him for several days. The family found him charming and he became enamoured with the host's daughter, Anne. One night the family sat down to play cards and Anne dropped a card, or in some versions of the legend, a ring. And when she bent down to pick it up, only to notice that her guest had cloven hooves. In a spooky coincidence, the family who owned Loftus Hall also owned a hunting lodge known as Dolly Mount, which also happened to be found on Mount Pellier Hill. Another legendary tale of Dublin's Hellfire Club relates to the possession of a large black cat. The story claims that a visitor to the area had heard of the infamous Hellfire Club and just had to see for himself. The very next morning, he was found dead. The local farmer who he had been staying with happened upon his remains, and it looked like he'd been torn apart by a beast. The local priest and the farmer went to the Hellfire Club to see if they could get some answers about what had happened to this poor deceased fellow. Upon entering the lodge, they found it empty, with the exception of an enormous black cat with horns. The cat launched itself at the farmer's face. There was blood gushing from his face and he staggered outside. The quick-thinking priest threw holy water at the cat, which made it hiss and cry out. The priest knew that this beast was possessed, and he performed a long, difficult exorcism, which eventually ridded the creature of the demon, but caused the cat to be torn apart as the demon left its body. Upon leaving the lodge, the priest discovered the farmer who was with him lying on the ground, dead. His face was ripped apart by deep claw marks. Another man who supposedly visited the club out of curiosity witnessed such atrocities that he lost his mind and he was not able to speak again for the remainder of his life. Simon Luttrell is the focus of another legend. It claims that he made a pact with the devil. He would give up his soul within seven years in return for settling his debts. But when the devil burst into Mount Pellier Lodge to claim his prize, Luttrell managed to distract the devil and he successfully escaped. These are all incredible tales dating back to the 1700s, but what of the 200 years since the Hellfire Club ceased to exist? It's fair to say that the ghosts of the building's past remain, be it the spirits of those long dead who had rested in peace for 5,000 years before having their eternal slumber torn apart by William Connolly, or those rumoured cats, and possibly even humans that had been sacrificed here. Perhaps those members of the Hellfire Club who could do whatever they wanted here, with like-minded men, have been drawn back here in death and continue to answer to no one. Or could it even be the devil himself? Visitors today to the ruined, burnt-out, moss-covered shell of the once great building have experienced all manner of paranormal occurrences. One of the most commonly reported happenings is those wearing necklaces or bracelets, saying that somebody has tugged on them, often when they're stood all alone. At night the building comes alive, and locals know only too well to avoid it after dark. Strange smells and sounds are noted all too often, and shadowy figures have been seen moving swiftly throughout the ruin. People have felt hands around their neck. The moment they turn around to see who's there, it stops. 
A woman's screaming has been heard. Most commonly around 2am, nobody knows why. In October 2018, Tina Barco of Paranormal Researchers Island spoke to the Irish Sun newspaper regarding Ireland's most haunted locations. The group have a unique take on paranormal investigating, as they are made up exclusively of sceptics and cynics, and actively seek to disprove hauntings, rather than seek evidence to prove the existence of ghosts. She told the newspaper, We are quite grounded, we are not mediums or psychics or anything like that, and 99% of homes we go into would be contaminated from things like radiators or creaks in the house, or something wrong with the electrics, it wouldn't be hauntings. Then there is also that 1% that we simply can't debunk, and that keeps us going. She revealed, There have been two places I have been that I have gotten absolutely terrified, and I don't usually. One of these locations was the Hellfire Club in the Dublin Mountains, and the other, in another spooky coincidence, was Loftus Hall in County Wexford. Talking about the Hellfire Club, she explained, Two things happened here on separate nights that I haven't been able to explain, and that absolutely terrified me. We were up on the Hellfire one night, a group of eight or ten of us. Around 1am we went in and put some equipment on the floor, vibration sensors and electromagnetic spectrum equipment, and we all know there is no electricity there. We stood in a circle and the next minute there was a thud. It was like a vibration went right through the whole building, and all the equipment went mental. One of the guys was in the hall, and he is a cynic, and he said a black shadow crossed him, 100%, a tall black shadow. Another guy started getting sick, and then a girl said she heard a whisper in her ear, very clear, and it just said, get out. All in the course of one minute, chaos. That was the first time ever I called an end of the night, and said we didn't feel safe. The hill upon which the Hellfire Club stands may now be named for the most famous building which stands on its peak as is Hellfire Hill Wood that surrounds it. Other houses on Mount Pillier Hill include Lord Massey's Estate, Cathy's Castle, the Orlag House, and the building used by the Hellfire Club following the fire, the Steward's House, which is said to be potentially as haunted as the Hellfire Club Lodge. The two-storey Steward's House is found down the hill, along the military road which also includes stone from the Neolithic Passage Grave. The house was built in around 1765 as a hunting lodge by the Connollys. It has served many purposes since, such as a dower house and of course as a Hellfire Club meeting place. The house's reputation for being home to all manner of things that go bump in the night date back to the time of the Hellfire Club, and the best known spirit here is that of a large black cat. It's said that it was doused in scalphine and set alight by members of the Hellfire Club before escaping across the mountains with its fur aflame. Between 1968 and 1970, Mrs. Margaret O'Brien and her husband Nicholas, a retired guard or superintendent, were converting the house into an art centre, and the couple had difficulty getting work done due to the tradespeople that were being brought in being frightened off the job by the ghosts of the steward's house. These happenings were documented at the time in the Evening Herald and the Evening Press newspapers. One night, a friend of the O'Briens, artist Tony McCassie, and two workmen were confronted by a spectral figure and a black cat with glowing red eyes. Macassie painted a portrait of the cat which hung in the house for several years after. Although locals were sceptical of the reports, believing that they may be an attempt to garner free publicity for the forthcoming art centre. 
However, these sightings continued and further apparitions were reported, most notably of an Indian gentleman and of two nuns called Blessed Margaret and Holy Mary, who had taken part in Black Mass on Mount Pelia Hill. There were also reports of ringing bells when there were no bells there and poltergeist activity. In 1970, an RTE television crew recorded a documentary at the house. In the documentary, a medium called Sheila Sinclair was brought in and she claimed to make contact with the spirits of the house. She did this in the form of automatic writing. In 1971, a plumber working at the house happened upon a grisly discovery. He found a grave containing a small skeleton, either that of a child, or it was suggested that this could be the dwarf that it was claimed the Hellfire Club had sacrificed. Today the building is a private home. The Hellfire Club in the year 2023 is maintained by Colt A, a state-owned commercial forestry company, and they have installed concrete stairs and iron safety rails across the upper windows. It forms part of the Hellfire Club Walk, officially known as the Mount Pelia Loop Trail, and it is one of the more popular Dublin walks. It's a leisurely walk that takes you up Mount Pelia Hill to the ruins of the old lodge. The lodge has been in a state of decay for well over 200 years. Even during the time of the Holy Fathers, it was written in 1779 that it was in a state of disrepair. The shell, including the iconic roof, have survived to this very day. This is despite the roof being set aflame with tar barrels during the visit of Queen Victoria to Ireland in 1849. Since 2016, the Hellfire Club archaeological project have been studying the passage grave. Artefacts recovered during the excavation include a large stone bearing megalithic art, a polished stone axe head, a number of pieces of worked flint, and a small quality of burnt human bone. In March 2017, plans were announced for a major Dublin Mountains project development on the site of Mount Pelia Hill and the Hellfire Club, involving parking, a cafe, a treetop walkway, improved trails and a visitor centre. These plans have horrified the locals, who are in defiant opposition to the plans, worrying that they'll bring traffic congestion to the area, from the predicted 300,000 visitors. Also there is consideration of the recently discovered megalithic artwork and other Neolithic remains, and the impact to the delicate ecosystem of the area. A campaign has been launched called Save the Hellfire. The remote Hellfire Club building is accessible at any time day of night. But are you brave enough to experience the Hellfire Club for yourself? Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the Hellfire Club. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint and you'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened. There's five episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation at the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? 
All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, let's return to England, but we will continue to delve into the shady activities of the mysterious Hellfire Club. In High Wickham are a network of man-made caves that go a quarter of a mile underground. These were purpose-built by 1752 to be used as a meeting place for the secretive Hellfire Club to carry out their drunkenness and debauchery. The Hellfire Club may be long gone, but the ghosts remain. Poltergeist activity is common, with stones being thrown and footsteps on the gravelly floor. Chanting and screaming is heard echoing along the narrow corridors. And then there are the spirits that are seen. A young maid who lost her life there. The former steward of the club, and even one of America's founding fathers who frequently visited the club during his lifetime, and seemingly in death too. But is this location as haunted as we would be led to believe? Let's find out together next week when we head underground into the Hellfire Caves. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we once again ask the question, How Haunted? Thank you.